0: You know, being a native Washingtonian, where we don't have tornadoes, moving to a state that has tornadoes—to be totally honest with you—is a little unsettling to me. I mean, how do you how do you live with that? And I mean, you think about it—the sheer force. And destructive nature and power of a tornado, this is, this is a shocking thing because, because it feels so brutal and unmerciful because all you can do is just sort of hide in the bathroom and just hope that it blows away. Right? That, that's all you can do. And should a tornado hit our area, it will show no mercy and everything it touches, it will turn upside down and we'll be left with the wreckage to pick up the pieces. Right? This is a shocking thing. And yet scary though an actual tornado may be, You probably know this, we are in the midst of a cultural tornado as we speak that is literally turning everything upside down. And this is nothing new, right? I mean, ever since the virus of sin was unleashed in the garden at the beginning, it has been creating a a culture of chaos. The difference between then and now is that now we have Twitter and YouTube so that we can see these things before our very eyes. But think about it. Think about it just for a moment how much things have capsized even in just the last few years. Dogs are treated like kids. Kids are treated like dogs. Men act like women. Women act like men. Adults attack kids. Kids teach adults. Humanity is, is good, but past generations are evil, of course. Feelings, not facts, determine what is true. Bullying is anything that makes me uncomfortable. Bigotry is any opinion that differs from my own. You must validate my subjective feelings, no matter how irrational they may be. Religious authority, bad. Secular authority, good, depending on what side of the aisle you're talking about. Black lives matter. No one disputes that, of course. That's patently obvious. Unless, of course, you're talking about black babies in the womb, then not so much. Defund the police, but, of course, keep funding abortion clinics. Do you you see? This is madness. This is madness. This, this is a cultural tornado obliterating everything in its path that is good and right and true. And yet and yet I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm doing here this morning. I'm not merely here to gripe and moan about how wicked the culture is. I'm not here to talk about how, how great America used to be before we lost it to the liberals. No, I have an agenda this morning. I have a way forward. I have a solution. And the solution is, in a culture of chaos, where truth is relative, where people can't even agree anymore on what a man or a woman is, what we need to do more than ever is to hold the line. And to tell the world that God has spoken God has revealed himself to the world, and he has revealed himself in a book that isn't just some book, but it is an encounter with the living, all satisfying God through the words on the page. And you see, loving and trusting this book as the treasure of our souls is exactly why we're beginning this morning a new series on Psalm 119. Psalm 19, as you know, is a 176-line poem, and every single line in that poem is about one singular subject: the supremacy and the centrality and the absolute sufficiency of the Word of God. <laughs> Think about that. The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. What that means is that God is communicating through His Word that the most important thing in life is His Word. Why? Because His Word isn't just true. It is truth itself. It comes on the page with the very authority of God Himself. Don't you see? When you have the Word of God, you have God Himself because it is the portal to the very presence and power of God Himself. And all I'm saying is, in a culture gone crazy, the most loving service you can render to the world is not to escape from the world, but precisely to engage the world. To face the loaded gun of a hopeless culture and to invite them into your home. And over dinner, tell them that the word of God, that God has spoken, the living God has spoken, and he has spoken in his word. We have nothing to apologize for. We have nothing to be ashamed of here. God has spoken. And so in this series on Psalm 119 this summer, this summer I'm calling you to make a commitment. Commitment. A commitment to renew your vows, as it were, to give the Word of God the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. Because at the end of the day, it is like Calvin said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. It is like Luther said, that if anyone wants to hear God speak, all he needs to do is read holy scripture. Feelings are fickle and complex. Only the word of God is certain and guaranteed. And so I can't think of any better way to spend our supper than to fixate on the supremacy and the centrality and the sufficiency of the word of God. And the best place to do that is Psalm 119 itself. So here we go. This morning, here's here's where we're going. I want you to see from our text three features of the Word of God. Three features of the Word of God and its irreplaceable role in the lives of God's redeemed. Three features of the Word of God and its irreplaceable role in the lives of God's redeemed. And so here we go, feature number one. The Word of God produces happiness in holiness. The word of God produces happiness in holiness. And you notice, I did not say happiness and holiness as if those were separate things. I said happiness in holiness because contrary to public opinion, our highest happiness is, per, is found precisely in our pursuit of holiness. Because notice, notice how verses one and two begin. Blessed Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. Blessed, blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all of their heart. You know, it's a funny thing about that word blessed. It's not what you think. It's better than you think. Because we typically associate that word with our circumstances, right? When things go our way, we are blessed. When they don't, we never use that word, and yet we totally should. Because what that word literally means, get this now, it literally means happy. It means happy. He's talking about happiness. He's talking about joy here. He's talking about a transcendent, internalized joy. He's talking about a pervasive, soul-satisfied delight. And so isn't it interesting but not surprising that a poem about the Word of God begins not with guilt and shame, but with happiness and delight. Which makes perfect sense when you consider the fact that the Word of God is not here merely to govern our morals, but to be a portal to the very presence of God himself. But notice, notice, who does the psalmist specify are the owners of this happiness and joy? Who who does he say? Who who alone does he argue has this pervasive, soul-satisfied delight? It's a monumental qualification. Not everyone can be happy. It belongs exclusively to those, notice, who are blameless in their way. And there it is. There it is, the the truth that so few believers get a handle on in this life, namely that happiness is not found instead of holiness, but that our highest happiness is found precisely in the pursuit of our holiness. Because although oil and water don't mix, holiness and happiness are absolutely inseparable because holiness is exactly what it means to be blameless. So to, to hear the claim of the psalmist here, the happiest most joyful people on the planet are people, are, the, are those people whose lives are blameless. The happiest, most joyful people on the planet are those whose lives are blameless. And so if that's true, that holiness is happiness and it's true, we have got to get a handle on what it means to be blameless because it, what it does not mean is sinless. Blamelessness does not mean Sinlessness. God is not asking you to be a a glorified human being who cannot be tempted. Nor does it mean that there aren't occasional lapses or struggles for which you need to repent and seek power to change. But what it does mean, listen very carefully, what it does mean is that there are no hidden patterns or secrets in your life that would in any way bring your God or yourself or your church into open shame. Means there are no scandals, no secrets, no skeletons, no, no shame, nothing hidden. That there's nothing to hide. To be blameless is to have a radically transformed, albeit imperfect, life that, by sovereign grace, puts Jesus Christ on display. And so the question is: Are you blameless this morning? Are you blameless this morning? What I mean is, is your life so radically transformed by Jesus Christ that when all the facts are in, not one area of your life can legitimately bring Jesus Christ into public disrepute? And notice, I'm not asking, are you sinless? I'm asking, are you blameless? Because although being sinless is impossible in this life, being blameless is profoundly possible if you are in Christ. And so the most obvious question here is this morning, okay, well, how then does one go about becoming blameless? How do you become holy? Because if holiness is happiness, and it is, then we have got to find the secret to holiness, and the secret to holiness is found in the very next phrase. Look what he says. Look at the text. He says, "Blessed are those whose way is blameless." Here it is, who walk in the law of Yahweh. You know, Hebrew poetry, which is what this is, is nothing at all like English poetry, right? In English poetry, we love rhyming and timing. Roses are red. Violets are blue. You look like a Yankees fan. You smell like one, too. See? That's what we like. But you see, Hebrew poetry is more like peanut butter and jelly, or chips and dip, or salt and pepper, or or any two things that perfectly complement one another. In other words, Hebrew poetry loves to take two phrases that perfectly complement one another and then let you meditate on the relationship between those two things. It's called parallelism. Parallelism. And in verse 1, we have parallelism. Statement number one, blessed happy are those whose way is blameless. Statement number two, who walk in the law of Yahweh. Do do, do you see how those complement one another? Statement number two clarifies statement number one. The second statement answers so many questions about the first statement, like what what kind of people actually live holy and blameless lives? Those who walk in the law of Yahweh. What does a blameless life actually look like? And and how is it produced when you walk in? in the law of Yahweh. From where does the power come from to actually be holy and blameless? And the answer, the only answer on the list is the law of Yahweh. Do you see? The power for true life change and transformation comes only through the text And when it says law here, don't don't think in terms of like illegal versus legal. No, that Hebrew word literally means instruction. The word law, Torah, it means instruction. The point is the word of God is that which navigates us through the twisted and tangled complexities of life. The instruction of Yahweh is that which steers us through the fog of complex situations strewn with temptation that would otherwise destroy us. And yet the question is, what does it mean to walk in the law of Yahweh? Walk meaning what? Walk meaning live. It's to live. He means that the word of God is the pervasive influence of your life. It's the air you breathe. It shapes and governs everything you do, even in the most private moments of your life when no one is watching you except God because you've seen them, haven't you? Sick people in hospitals who walk around with a portable IV, they are permanently attached to the thing that keeps them alive, and that's exactly what the text is saying. To walk in the law of Yahweh is that moment by moment, second by second, conscientious, clinging to the word and conforming to the word. So you can see it, can't you? how the Bible wants you to use the Bible. It's not enough just to know some facts about the Bible. Rather, we have got to have an IV drip line relationship to the Bible. Meaning what? How do you do this? How do you make the Word of God be the pervasive influence of your life? And I don't know any other way to do it. You have to first read the Word, which is obvious. But you have got to read it up and down till you can almost see the words on the page when you close your eyes. You get it absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul through daily meditation. And then, here's the key. In real time, you must recall the Word. You must recite the Word. And you must rely upon the power of the Word as you go throughout your day. You see, we just actively integrate the word of God in every single thing that we're doing. I mean, we do this all the time with other stuff all day long. We meditate all the time, don't we? Because I don't know about you, but, but so much of my thought life is not governed by God's word. Hours of thoughts, thousands of words that I can never take back, Suspicious motives that I have that I never question. Regrettable actions and, and words made on impulse. Angry, bitter, selfish thoughts just glide through my head, and so much of it is not leashed and constrained by the Word of God. Don't you see? This is the secret. The moment by moment attachment to God's Word is the secret to holiness and it's the secret to happiness because in the Bible, those two things are the exact same thing. Let me take it from the psalmist. The more holy you are, the more. Happy you become, and those things are only produced by the sacred text. But then in verse 2, you notice he begins the exact same way. Blessed, blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. And there it is again, the, the promise of happiness, the guarantee of gladness. Blessed, happy are those who observe his testimonies. And yet, what does it mean to observe his testimony? What's a testimony? Well, it just simply means that God has testified. God has testified about his character. He has testified about what he's doing in the world. He has testified about what he demands from his people. So to observe his testimony simply means that your life is nothing more than self-leveling concrete. In other words, whatever God says, whatever God has revealed in his word, your life will perfectly conform to the contours and shape of the text, which sounds radical, doesn't it? That whatever God says, whatever God has revealed, that your life is just going to conform to that. It's just going to take the shape of the text. I mean, that sounds radical, doesn't it? That's exactly what it is because notice the parallelism the second half of the verse verse 2 blessed are those who observe his testimonies notice who seek him with all of their heart did you see how see how those two statements complement one another it's profound it, you see it's not true obedience to god's word if you are not seeking him with all of your heart. And it's not true seeking of God if you do not seek him through his word. Or to put it positively, a radical pursuit of Yahweh as your greatest treasure is defined by having the word as the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. And so think about what the psalmist is telling us. Your Highest happiness is found in the radical holiness produced by a passionate pursuit of God's Word as your deepest delight. In other words, when we are at our holiest, we are at our happiest, and that happy holiness or holy happiness, or however you want to put it, is found, is produced precisely by the power. Of the, word. the question is, do you, do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that's even possible? That, that happiness could be holiness, and that holiness could be happiness, and that all of it is produced by the power of the word, which isn't just some piece of literature, but it is the portal to the very power and presence of God himself. That's not that's not just possible. That is guaranteed. And I don't know how much you know about this thing called deep fake you heard of this it's an incredible thing deep fake apparently people are getting so good at artificial intelligence that they are able to make videos where people say things and do things that they've never said and they've never done and it's nearly impossible to tell that it's a forgery i mean you can frame people for doing just about anything I mean, it looks and sounds exactly like the real thing. And and here's the thing. That's precisely how sin operates. Sin is the ultimate deep fake operation. Because you see, it pretends to offer pleasure and satisfy the soul. And in the moment, it's almost impossible to tell that it's a sham and deception. You see, sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in God through his word. And the psalmist understands that. And so, look finally at verse 3. Not only is one made happy and holy by the word, but when they are happy, when they are holy, notice, they also do no wickedness. They walk in his ways. Do you see it? When we have the happy holiness or the holy happiness produced by God's word, not only do we not do wickedness, we walk in his ways. That's the secret to sanctification. Do you see this? That's the secret, the secret to life change and transformation. When supremely satisfied in God through his word, the shallow streams of sin lose their deceptive appeal see your highest happiness comes only in your holiness which is only produced by a passionate pursuit of God's word as your deepest delight which brings me then to the second feature of God's word and its irreplaceable role in the lives of God's redeemed number 2 number 2 the word of God brings change and transformation the word of God brings change and transformation because you wonder, don't you? You wonder, wh- wh- why, why do people get surgeries to change their gender? What's, what's with the whole, the whole transgender thing and, and sex change operations? I mean, why do men and women mutilate their bodies so that men can be women and men can be women? I mean, what's happening here? This is madness. And yet, and yet, I think I understand. I think I understand what they're after. You see, they are trying to accomplish with an operation on the outside what can only be accomplished by a transformation on the inside. You see, all sinners, all sinners without exception, are desperately looking for the kind of transformation that can only be accomplished by the renovating power of the sacred text. And you see, the psalmist feels his great need for radical transformation. Look at verse 4. Speaking to God, he says, you command your precepts that we should keep them diligently. in other words, God, I I know why you gave us your word. I know why you have revealed yourself to human beings. I know the meaning of the text and the meaning is that God wants us to keep his word with diligence. He understands this meaning that when God speaks in his word, he's not offering suggestions or optional advice, but rather he is giving us binding obligations of infinite authority. You have to understand the word of God comes down to us loaded with the very authority of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. You see, God speaks through his word And he expects us that when we read, we understand that when our eyes pass over the text, we see it as binding and non-negotiable. And the inspired poet gets this. You commanded your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Diligently. In other words, radical obedience to God's word. That's what he's talking about. As opposed to what? As opposed to what? Superficial obedience, selective obedience, delayed obedience, external obedience, begrudging, reluctant, joyless, half-hearted obedience. You see, God has zero interest in mere external conformity to a code of ethics. When we would much rather be sinning Rather, what delights the heart of God is that when his word is such a treasure to us that we delight to do what he commands. Look at Psalm nineteen, verse eleven. Let's just skip down a few verses. In your heart I treasure your word, that I may not sin against you. Verse thirty-two. I run, I sprint the way of your commandments for you have enlarged my heart. Verse 35, get, get the load of his language. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. Why? For I take pleasure in it. Verse 60, I hastened, I hurried and I did not delay to keep your commandments. That is Diligence. That's what God loves. That's what thrills the heart of God. Diligent, dependent, passionate delight and obedience to his word. And yet, that's just the thing about that kind of obedience. That's just the thing about diligent obedience. It is not human or natural it is profoundly supernatural, isn't it? In other words, the kind of obedience about which the Bible speaks is a byproduct of sovereign grace. What I'm saying is holy people are not born that way. They are born again that way. Don't you see what Psalm 119 rightly does is drive us to the Messiah who not only perfectly kept Psalm 119, but he died for those who have not kept Psalm 119, which is all of us. But you see, the psalmist knows that on his own, he cannot do what God commands. Look at verse 5. Notice what he says, Oh. Oh that my ways be established to keep your statutes. When I mean, you see it, right? He sees the disparity between what God commands and how he actually lives. He he knows that God commands radical diligent obedience and all he can say in response is that is not how I live. And yet I desperately want to live that way. And you you hear the desperation in his voice. Oh, that my ways be established. Oh, how I want this. Oh, how I need this. Oh, if only my life could be transformed in ways that it currently is not. And I just want you to know that, that God is glorified not only by the transformation, but by our longings for transformation. You see, God is exalted in the agonized cries of your longings for holiness. He is displayed as glorious by the passionate pleas for life change and transformation that you do not currently have, but you desperately want. And my question is, do you desperately want that? Do you have the same raw, driving passion of the psalmist? Oh, that my ways be established to keep your statutes. Do you long for victory over those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that just never seem to go away? Because that's precisely what the poet craves. And I've got to get technical with you here. Sorry, but not sorry. There's a nuance in the Hebrew that's not quite as obvious in the English, but that verb to be established or to be steadfast in your Bibles there, that verb, get this now, is a passive verb. It's a passive verb. What that means is is that the psalmist is indicating that the action has to be performed upon him. That he is the recipient of the action of the verb. In other words, the change that he wants to see in his life, he understands that it is a change that God himself must produce. Now, don't misunderstand. He is fully responsible for complete obedience and submission to God's word. That doesn't change. But at the end of the day, the verb indicates that he knows that true transformation in his life must happen by the power that God supplies. He is, get this now, responsible to be transformed. And this is exactly what Christ means in John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, this one bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Because Christianity, you understand, it is not a willpower religion, but rather it is that which looks to Christ for the power to do what God commands, which is so liberating, isn't it? Just so liberating. God is so for us in Christ. I mean, God is not like Pharaoh who commands that we make bricks without straw and then beats us when we don't meet the quota. No, no, God supplies in his son through his word the very power to do what he commands and the very power to avoid what he forbids. And then, and then he's got the audacity to reward us at the end for everything that's done in dependence upon his son because that's who God is. That's what Christianity is. And the psalmist understands perfectly that radical obedience is produced by radical Dependence. And so his statement here in verse 5, this is a declaration of radical dependence. Make this your prayer, even especially when you're tempted. Oh, oh, that my ways be established to keep your statutes. But then notice the progression of his thinking. Verse 6. He longs for his whole life to be brought in, into conformity to the word of God, right? right? When, if my ways are established according to God's word, notice, then, then I will not be ashamed. And the Hebrew says, when I look upon all of your commandments. You know, because we all know, we all know the disappointment of, of watching a movie based on a book that we love and being totally disappointed because the movie is nothing like the book, right? You ever had that experience? The story's been changed, that the characters are different, the ending is stupid. And you see, that's precisely how the psalmist feels about the movie of his life when he compares it to the book. His life doesn't match up to the sacred text, and yet he desperately wants it to so that when he reads the sacred text, he is not stung by the bee sting of shame. Shame. What does he mean? What does it mean? That he does not want to be ashamed when he studies the commandments of God. Well, what he does not mean is that he never sins, or that he loses the ability to be tempted, although desirable in this life. That's just gonna have to wait to another age. Rather, what he does mean, what he does mean is a life set free get this now, from deliberate compromise and willful disobedience. He wants no areas of his life to be in secret rebellion. He doesn't want the the shame of the sin that he tolerates. In other words, what he's after here is the holy pleasure of a clean conscience. Because what money cannot buy what merely going to church can never give you and what a sex change operation can never produce is the liberating power of a conscience made clean. So the question is, do you, do you have a clean conscience this morning? I'm not asking you, do you never struggle? I'm asking you, do you feel the sting of shame because of secret rebellion? Do you have anything in your life that you knowingly tolerate? I'm not assuming. I'm just, I'm just asking. I'm just asking. And if I don't ask you, who's going to ask you? You hired me to make you uncomfortable and to make you happy in Christ. But I just want you to know, you can have that. You can have that. You can taste the pleasure of, of a blameless life. You can have the greener grass of a clean conscience. It is literally yours for the taking through the blood of the Lamb and the transfusion of power supplied through the daily reading of the sacred text. You can have that. Because Paul told us, did he not, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind and the agent which produces that renewal, is the very book that you're holding in your hands. That's two. Two features of the Word of God and its irreplaceable role in the lives of God's redeemed, which brings us finally to number three. The Word of God produces praise and perseverance. The Word of God produces praise and perseverance because praise is a funny thing, isn't it? I don't know if you've thought about this. Worship, in other words, treasuring God, is, is kind of a funny thing because God commands us to worship, doesn't he? And he's right to do that. I mean, the only fitting response to the infinite worth and value of God is to treasure him and to worship him, and yet to be commanded to do so feels a little tricky because how do you make someone worship? How can God command you to treasure and love him and yet it be authentic? I mean, if worship is anything other than the passionate overflow of something that thrills your soul, is it even actually worship anymore? Do do, do you feel the issue that we're shaping here? And yet the answer, listen very carefully, the answer, ultimate answer, lies not in the power of the will to make yourself worship, but in the power of the Word to cultivate that worship. Look at verse 7. He says, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous decrees. Do you see it? Praise. He's talking about worship here. And he doesn't merely mean in the public setting of corporate worship. He's not just talking about the synagogue or the temple. Rather, he's talking about life here. He means a life in which God is prized and treasured and valued and loved and adored. He means a life in which God himself is a treasure of infinite worth and value. And yet you notice how he qualifies, how he describes the worship. I will praise you with praise uprightness of heart. Meaning what? Meaning what the psalmist craves is a heart unpolluted by opponents. What he's after is a life in which God's rightful place is not threatened by counterfeits or substitutes. In other words, he wants to love God more than anything else in the universe. And yet the question is, how is that going to happen? How how is authentic worship and delight produced in the soul? How does this happen? And since I'm preaching from Psalm 119, you already know the punchline, and yet pretend like you're surprised. Pretend like you don't know. Look at verse 7. I will praise you with uprightness of heart. Here it is. When I learn your righteous decrees. Do you hear it? I will worship you. God, with my highest delight, when, when, when I learn what your righteous decrees. Implication? Something has to happen before authentic worship is even possible. And what has to happen is that the word of God must be encountered. The word of God must be learned. The Word of God has to be experienced and savored and enjoyed because that's what he means by learn here. You see, rigorous learning is the means to all authentic loving. The love of God and the life of the mind are passionately connected in the Bible. The very reason why God gave you a mind was so that you could discover and delight and display and declare the infinite worth and value of God. Do you see? You see, the poet understood this. He understood that the flames of worship are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. And that doesn't merely mean that your eyes just sort of pass over the words, glossily, lazily pass over the words, and then you automatically feel better like some pill. No. By learning, by learning, it means a level of engagement with the text that doesn't demand that you be intellectual, but it demands that you be intentional. You don't have to be an academic to, ad- to adore God. But you do have to be able to think. And by think, I mean the relentless pursuit of treasure in the text that you never even imagined could possibly be there. I mean, you have to have what I call cognitive tenacity mental dexterity, that is, the willingness to engage with even a single text of Scripture in its context as long as it takes until your soul is awakened to what is there in the text. You see, I want you to be greedy for the greater riches of the Bible. And the greater riches await those who work hard to see what's really actually there. I mean, there are hundreds of of connections and meanings and implications in the Bible that don't leap off the page at first reading. At least for me. I've got to slow way down, and I've got to start asking questions about those words and those connections and those meanings and implications. That is, my thinking has to become intentional. Because Heinz 57 Ketchup used to have this slogan that justified how long it took for their ketchup to come out of the bottle. That was before they had the squeezy plastic kind. But you you remember their slogan, right? The best things come, finish it, to those who wait. And I say, the best things come to those who meditate. See, if you cannot embrace the pain of learning, But you just have to have instant gratification with no effort. You forfeit the greatest rewards in this life. Are you hearing me? And seeing the savoring the glory of God in the text is the greatest reward of all. And seeing and savoring the glory of God in the text is how our worship is produced. So back to our little pickle about worship here. When God demands that we treasure in worship him, he is not expecting those affections to come from nowhere, but from somewhere. And where that somewhere is, is the sacred text of holy scripture, seen and savored and read and studied and fixated and meditated and thought about and pondered. Because learning is always the means to authentic loving. So when you wake up in the morning and every cinder in your soul feels cold and the last thing you feel like doing is reading the text of Scripture, you must crawl to the Word of God. Go to the text. Learn the righteous decrees of God, and the word will ignite the cold ashes of your soul into the flames of affection for the living God, and then you will be able to say, I praise you with uprightness of heart. But you see, you see, the poet not only understands his, needs for, his need for God's power to praise, he understands his need for God's power to persevere. Look finally at verse 8. He says, I will keep your statutes. I will keep them. Do not utterly forsake me. Notice his resolution. I will keep your statutes. I'm going to do this. I'm going to live this. I'm going to apply this. I'm going to live this out. The gentle, delicate fabric of my life is going to conform to the ironwork framework of the text. Whatever God says, whatever God reveals, I'm going to bend my life in conformity to the text. That's what he means by keep the statutes of God. And and so the question is, is that your passion? Do you desire that your life would be like a gentle, delicate fabric laid over the unbendable iron framework of the text, perfectly conforming to its contours? Do you desire that? I guess what I'm asking is, no matter how inconvenient it might be at first, do you take the text as serious as if it were God himself standing in the room? Because that's exactly what it is. How you treat and respond and feel about the word is actually how you feel about God himself. And yet you notice, don't you, the future tense of the verb? Notice, we we, we need to notice things like this. I will keep your statutes. I will do this. This is going to happen. And you can tell this is not a one-time act, but rather the perpetual pattern of his life will be a persistent obedience that perseveres to the very end. Because the Christian life, you understand, is not a a one-time profession of faith. The Christian life is a marathon for life. And yet, in declaring his conviction to persevere into the end, he's not, being, he's not being proud or presumptuous because notice very carefully the second half of the verse. I will keep your statutes. Here it is. Do not utterly forsake me. How can he say that? I mean, does he know who God is? Does he really expect God is going to forsake him? Well, what does he mean here? You know what that is? You know what that is? That is a startling way of expressing his dependence upon the sovereign, sustaining power of God to cause him to persevere. He's not saying that God actually ever would forsake him. Rather, he's just simply saying that if God ever were to remove his sovereign enabling grace, he would never actually keep God's commands. He knows, he knows, without the transforming power of God's grace, there isn't a snowball's chance in the Texas sun that he is ever going to keep the statutes of God. It's never going to happen. And he's right. And this is healthy for the soul to acknowledge this. See, all this is, as an Old Testament way of saying, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's all. The Father would never abandon us. Uh, Christ purchased our adoption, and it is certain and guaranteed and irrevocable. But never ever forget that all we are is what Luther said at the end of his life via sind bettler das ist wahr We are beggars. This is true. So my question is, have you, have you come to grips with your spiritual poverty this morning? Do you believe that even at our best, we are but spiritual cripples and beggars of grace? Because I'll just tell you right now, the secret of the Christian life is that you must master the virtue of desperation I mean, the self-esteem movement is insanity. It is insane. Rather, we must despair in our worthless resources to live the Christian life and cast ourselves upon Christ for his endless ones. And you could just even take verse 8 and you could make it your prayer. An expression of your radical dependence on the sovereign, empowering grace of God. I will love my family today. Do not forsake me utterly. I will be holy today. Do not forsake me utterly. I will not gossip or slander today. Do not forsake me utterly. I will not be controlled by greed or materialism. Do not forsake me utterly. I will be courageous with the gospel today. Do not forsake me utterly. I will not be harsh and critical I will trust Christ for the impossible. I will treasure him as my deepest delight. Do not utterly forsake me. I close with this. I think it's clear, isn't it? I think it's clear that what's at stake in verses 1 through 8 is not merely our holiness and not merely our happiness, but rather our highest Happiness in our holiness, which only comes when we radically pursue God's word as our deepest delight. See that's what Christ meant in John 158 when he talked about f- the, the fruit that brings glory to the Father that proves that we are His disciples, and that you see, is what a culture of chaos needs from us. You see, we are the real protesters. We are Protestants. We are the new reformers. And our job is not to go on some crusade against sexual deviancy or any other social cause for that matter, but to openly confess our faith. To declare the greatest news in the world. That infinite joy is available through a crucified Savior who rules the world. And one day He will come back and establish His kingdom, and He will make in that moment all things be the way they ought to be. That's what a culture of chaos needs to hear. So let's not keep them waiting, shall we? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we see that your word is the centerpiece of our lives, or at least it must be. Oh, Lord, we understand that you're not merely interested in getting us to conform to some rules. To to, to look good to public view, you want it all. You want it all. You want all of us. You will have all of us, or you will have no part of us. And, Lord, we cannot do that on our own, and we gladly confess that. Oh Christ, we confess you as our vine. We are but branches. We look to you. We call out to you. We cry out to you in our spiritual poverty because you are everything. Everything that, that you are is everything that we were created to need and enjoy forever. You are the Messiah, which means, which means you are the answer to everything. And so Messiah, we come to you. And we declare to you right now and we ask you that you, would, that you would minister to us and help us and strengthen us and help us to not just know some right things about you, but to cling to you moment by moment, second by second through your word. Thank you for this time this morning and for what a treasure Psalm 119 is. In your mighty name, amen.